In this episode, we're sitting down with Christy Smith. She's a former career DEA agent, someone who spent her life in the courts and in DEA and has a lot of experience with regard to drug cases. We're talking to her today about fentanyl and the dangers that everyone needs to be aware of. Well, Christy, thank you for being here with me this afternoon, uh, even virtually. I really appreciate the time that you're taking to talk about what is a important topic and something close to both of our hearts. Oh, you're welcome. I appreciate you allowing me to come on and talk about it. Absolutely. So you and I have known each other for years now and uh, always through the criminal justice system, first with the court, but then you went on to become a DA investigator. Um, and I'd love to talk to you about your background, particularly as it relates to, um, as I said, what's close to our hearts, which is fentanyl deaths and how we can all maybe play a part in helping educate people and avoiding those deaths because they're all unnecessary and tragic. Definitely, definitely. So tell our audience a little bit about yourself and uh, how you ended up working with the DEA. Well, that's a pretty long story, but I'll keep it short. So I was uh, primarily the most of my career was spent in the court system, which is where we originally met, where I worked for a judge for about 13 years. And when I left the court system, I actually started teaching criminal justice at the University of Arlington. And I think we had some interactions there also. Um, During that time period, my husband was an agent for DEA, and he recommended that I maybe apply for a diversion investigator uh, position with DEA. And at the time, my kids were still in high school, and I thought, well, I mean, there's a possibility we could be relocated, um, and then there's a probability that I would spend three months at Quantico doing the training. And so I went ahead and applied. It took me about five years to get through the process. Um, There were some hiring freezes and things like that with the government. And so when I finally got the call, I took that position. My kids had already graduated from high school. And um, so I said yes. And I was sent up to Quantico for three months and then was actually stationed at the DFW uh, field division. Wonderful. So this term diversion, when you say in a diversion investigator, a lot of people haven't heard that term before. What does diversion mean? So diversion is obviously um, we deal primarily with controlled substances, unlike the agents who really deal with the street level drugs. And so controlled substances are drugs that are actually uh legal in a pharmaceutical sense. So a doctor can prescribe a controlled substance um, for legal purposes, medical purposes. And then um, as long as it's for in the usual course of professional practice and for a legitimate medical purpose, it's perfect. But what happens is sometimes these drugs are diverted, which is uh, taken from the closed system of distribution into the licit market. And as a diversion investigator, that's our job to, number one, track those drugs to ensure that they're not diverted. And if they are, to investigate those specific instances where they are diverted. Interestingly enough, and although it was only a a small portion of what you did, uh, we actually had a case against each other where your investigation actually centered on a doctor's involvement in some prescription fraud. Yes, Yes, that was uh, actually, that was my career case. So it was a very large investigation that um, had 49 defendants and it was a pill mill operation that been operating for about a decade. 
Uh, I, I certainly understand and recognize it being a career case because I remember when I first got uh, the terabytes and years worth of information <laughs> that we had to go through. So I, I certainly appreciate that. And yes. for our viewers, it just goes to show what a small world, um, the, particularly the legal environment, even though we're talking about a federal case in Texas and in North Texas is your people that you work with or against or people that you might come across during your entire career. Yes, yes, yeah. It was pretty intimidating uh, coming across you and Christy Jack whenever it was my first time to testify in federal court, but it was it was definitely fun. <laughs> you did phenomenally well, and Thank uh, you. although you know we had positions that were adverse to each other, I could certainly recognize the the diligence and the work that you and your team put into it. So, uh, just on behalf of the community, I suppose thank you, and uh, well, just for being you. who Vice you versa. <laughs> being who you are. Thank you. So, you know, you and I have talked uh, in passing about something that comes up commonly in federal court, which is fentanyl. So tell me a little bit about kind of your exposure to fentanyl coming from the DEA side of things. So obviously fentanyl is, it, it, there is a legal purpose for it, a legitimate purpose, and it's usually used for post-surgery pain, maybe end-of-life pain. You've heard of people have fentanyl patches and things like that. So that's a legitimate use for it. But just like any controlled substances, the, the drug community has found an illegitimate use. And, and a lot of that, I kind of blame on us because what we tended to do is go out and during the opioid epidemic, we went after those doctors and those pharmacists that were sending these drugs to the streets. And then what happened, well, there's addicts and there's drug dealers and they saw an opportunity in the market to actually uh, fill that space now that the pharmaceutical drugs weren't there. And so they actually decided that they were going to start pressing pills utilizing fentanyl. And so it was to fuel the addiction of the individuals that were taking it. Um, and so it was, it was quite scary. And we, it would, over the course of the probably last five years that I was with DEA, um, we would see more and more of that on the streets. And um, one of the concerns I've always had is it took a while before we started uh, talking to the public about it, which is what we're doing now. It took several years. And I can remember having a conversation with one of my friends who's a lawyer and telling her about these cases. And she's like, why don't people know about this? And I'm like, I don't, I don't know. And then it was shortly after that, that, you know, there's a, the, public uh, campaign for one pill can kill and things like that. But this was happening for, for years before it was ever brought to the public's attention. And I want to touch on that a little bit. This, this not just idea, but the reality that one pill can in fact kill is part of the reason you and I are so concerned about this. And, and we have people who know they're taking fentanyl, but there's also a group of population that gets fentanyl laced in with other drugs. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So, I mean, I, there's always been a stigma with the drug community, right, associated with drug use, but fentanyl is kind of a game changer because what's happening is it hits every socioeconomic status, every gender, every age. Um, and a, a lot of the people don't even know that they're taking something that's laced with fentanyl. Um, a lot of these could be, you know, middle-aged school children, um, high school kids, things like that. I can remember when I was in high school, I might have a headache and I want uh, to have an aspirin from my friend or a Motrin and they'd hand me something. You can't do that anymore because you don't know what's going to be in that pill. 
and they look exactly like what a pharmaceutical medication would look like. Exactly. So sometimes we see fentanyl or even counterfeit fentanyl, but you have the mechanisms now, criminals have the mechanisms now to basically make a pill look like anything. I mean, they can look like Flintstones if you want them to look like Flintstones. Yes, yes. And so originally when we first started seeing it hit the market, um, it was really little Johnny pressing the pills in, the, in his house, right? In, in the United States, they were using buying pill presses and buying the ingredients and, you know, the precursors and things like that. But what we saw happening, we would seize those pills and they would fall apart in our hands. But then over the course of the years, when the cartel took over the market, that's when there's no difference in a pill that looks like an Adderall or an oxycodone or a Xanax. It looks exactly like a pharmaceutical grade pill. It's and you wouldn't know the difference, and that's the scary part. Absolutely. When particularly when I'm working with younger people and uh, they just don't know what they're getting. You're in college. You're maybe for the first time in your life without adult supervision. And you think you're doing something that's going to be on the mild end of this scale. You're experimenting. But the reality you and I know is that small experiment might be you ingesting fentanyl unknowingly, and it could lead to a death. And it's it's just something that you and I have seen. We've seen criminal cases arising out of it, these kinds of situations, and they're always, always tragic. Yeah, I can recall when I was teaching at UT Arlington, because I had a good relationship with my students, and they would talk about just experimenting with Adderall at the time for test anxiety. Um, and I would say a majority of the students had taken Adderall at one point in time. Um, and nowadays, I mean, it's most likely going to contain fentanyl. So, you know, one of the things that scares me the most or really stands out to me the most is the DEA, DEA lab tests the seized medications that we season in drug, you know, search warrants and things like that. And in 2021, four out of every 10 pills contain fentanyl. And then in 2022, six out of every 10 pills contain fentanyl. So now we're 20, that's 20% increase in a year. So now 2023, are we going to come back and eight out of a pill, eight of every 10 pills contain fentanyl? And within a year, a hundred percent will contain fentanyl. And this is exactly why I hope every parent sees this and every young person knows what's out there. Because if you're at an age when someone can be offering you something that's as seemingly benign as Adderall, it's going to help you with your test. You, you're you're this young kid trying to do the right thing. I want to score well on this test. I, I need to study hard. And and the risk there is just so great. And um, that's why there are these campaigns, to get the word out to say, look, you really can't take that risk. Yeah. And I like to say that really high or college is really too late to have conversations with these kids. We need to be having them in middle school. And, you know, we had the recent case in Carrollton where they, they had 10 overdoses in a very short period of time. And three of them, uh, three of the kids that died were between 13 and 18 years of age. And so, and this was a middle school, somebody dealing drugs into the middle school. And so really those conversations need to start at a young age and they need to understand that unless a doctor prescribes you medication, you shouldn't take it at all. Um, and, and the fact that, you know, parents should be watching their kids' social media accounts because that's where a lot of this is being sold. Um, 
checking their browser history. Be familiar. DEAs put a lot of stuff out which shows the emojis and, and the slang terms that can be used um, on these social media accounts that parents should be you know, aware of. And I know on the enforcement side, you you wear a different hat than the prosecutor, but can you just tell me in very general terms, how is fentanyl prosecuted in comparison or punished in comparison to other drugs that you commonly came across? Well, it's the, the punishment range is the same. If it's a conspiracy to distribute a controlled substances, it's up to 20 years in prison. Um, and then, you know, it's it's harder to prosecute these cases. I would say harder to investigate the cases because in a normal drug case, you know, we're looking for that criminal enterprise. And if we have a death and somebody calls 911, usually it's a local police department that's going to come and investigate that case. And they might not have the skills uh, to deal with an overdose death. They might not know what to, to um, look for as far as evidence is concerned on the scene. And so it's very hard to actually investigate these cases. Really, primarily what we're doing is it's circumstantial evidence. And we're looking at cell phone data to see if we can track, you know, who, who the last person was to give this, you know, sell this pill to this individual. Um, we rely on witnesses, you know, friends and family that are witnesses. Because a lot of these kids that are dying, they didn't have a drug history. They just took one pill. And that's what's scary. So, you know... It's very difficult to, to prove these cases, but if it is a good case and they can prove it, then the perpetrator is looking up to 20 years uh, max in prison, federal prison. Yeah. And the penalties go up if they can attribute a death to the fentanyl that was distributed. Yes. It's not directly related to what we're talking about, but more broadly, when you talk about text messages and these conversations that happen between someone who's selling drugs and buying drugs, there's this common misconception that, well, if I just use coded language, if I ask for work instead of what I'm looking for, that somehow the law enforcement agents won't understand what's going on, or maybe they won't be able to prove it in court. What's your experience been with regards to coded language? Does that conceal anything? No, it doesn't. And we, we've had that experience in our trials that we've been together on and in other trials that I've worked. And so we know exactly what they're, they're talking about. And so we can, on the stand, we can express and explain exactly what they're saying in this coded language. And so it doesn't deter law enforcement because everybody's using the same coded language, right? <laughs> and so it doesn't deter us from conducting an investigation um, and usually we don't just rely on a phone and conversations on a phone to uh, go after somebody. You know, there's surveillance involved and other techniques that we utilize that helps us kind of connect the dots between the coded language and the actual drug um, distribution. Absolutely. You're, I don't, I don't know if I should say retired because now you're no longer with the DEA, but you still work and you consult on cases. Uh, for perhaps some criminal defense attorneys in my audience, tell us a little bit about what you do now and how an attorney might be able to utilize your services or even get in touch with you. Well, sure. Yeah. So after I left, I felt when I left DEA, I felt that there was a need in the community on the other side for education. And so part of my experience with DEA was on the regulatory side, but then part of it was on the criminal side. And so, you know, that need for education, a, a registrant, either a physician or a um, 
pharmacists, they might get a DEA registration, but they don't understand the burden and the responsibility they have uh, when they receive this DEA registration. So I've been working, I I opened my own consulting uh, business part-time. Sometimes it's more than part-time. Uh, but I, uh, I do expert witness testimony. I work with attorneys that either have cases open um, with DEA and then also do some proactive things with attorneys' offices and with registrants as far as, you know, making sure that they understand diversion, they understand what they're responsible for as far as the Controlled Substance Act is. And so I've been doing that for about a year and, and um you know, you can find me on my website. It's uh, www.farmmed, it's P-H-A-R-M-M-E-D, consulting.com. And then um, my email address is Christy, K-R-I-S-T-Y dot Smith at Farm Med Consulting. You know, this uh, idea that both lawyers and doctors, they go to school, they learn their profession, but They don't learn how to be business people, uh, and they don't necessarily learn all the requirements for those things that they're signing off for. So it is a big responsibility to be a DEA registrant, and yet it's important for these professionals because ultimately their freedom, their professional licenses are all at stake. And, And I think that's worth underscoring is that you've worked very hard to get to the positions that you're in. You need to take the time to make sure you're educated on exactly what you're signing off to be responsible for and understand, hey, there are things that you can't just delegate. Um, you know, as you as you grow, oftentimes you want to delegate duties to different people, but you have to understand what responsibilities lie with you if you're the one who has become the registrant. Yeah, and I think ignorance is ignorance is not an excuse, right? Under the law, right. and the other thing is, is their their employees need to be. Uh, able to understand what they're being exposed to also. And so it's not only just the doctor, but it's also employees, because in several of my criminal cases, the employees have been prosecuted and sentenced in federal court um, for the same, for, for ignoring it, really. Right, right. You know, Christy, this comes up with, unfortunately, more regularity than, than I would ever want. Um, and that is, you have a situation where someone finds themselves in a position where they were using drugs, and now the person they were with looks like they're overdosing. Uh, and that can look like a lot of different things, but people panic in that moment and they don't know what to do and their life is flashing before their eyes. Are they going to be held responsible for what's going on? Is there any hope in that moment? Is there anything a person can do in that moment? Well, I mean, the utilization of Narcan, I keep Narcan in my purse, in my car, and in my house, and and I'm not, you know, doing drugs, but I keep it close to my side um, because it can reverse uh, the effects of an opioid overdose. Uh, With fentanyl in particular, it might take more than one dose to actually pull them out of, it it binds to the receptors of the brain. And so the Narcan actually blocks those receptors. And so because fentanyl is so potent that um, they might need more than one uh, dose of of Narcan. And so, you know, my suggestion is, is it just, you carry it in your wallet or not wallet, but your purse or with you at any time. So that way, if you do see something happening, then you can utilize that. Um, You know, if you are an addict, they, there are fentanyl strips that can test drugs for fentanyl. So, you know, I mean, not that you're that di- diligent in what you're taking, but, 
you know, I can recall on some of my cases um, where the the addict would ask the drug dealer, they want the real stuff. They don't want the, the fake stuff because they know how addictive it is and they know that there's a higher chance of dying. And so just keeping Narcan close is, is, is one of the best possibilities. Unfortunately, right now what we're seeing is um, that some of the pills that are coming out have not only fentanyl in them, but they've got xylazine in them. And that's like a tranquilizer for large um, animals. It's only utilized for animals, not human consumption. And unfortunately, it doesn't respond to Narcan. And so if there are pills out there, and there have been, and there will be more, obviously, with the xylazine and the fentanyl in them, then there's, you know, a higher chance that the Narcan's not going to work. So... How does one go about getting Narcan? Is it like an EpiPen where I've got to get a doctor to essentially say, hey, you might need this or can I go buy it? Yeah, and I think that the restrictions are different in each state. I'm not sure what Texas does. Um, I know before that a physician, um, when I was working with DEA, I know that some of the physicians, the pain management doctors were prescribing an opioid for pain management, but they were also prescribing uh, Narcan with that just in case something happened. And so I'm not sure what the law is as far as um, Narcan in Texas and in the other states. Tell us a little bit about how fentanyl uh, comes to the illicit marketplace. So what we're seeing now is we're seeing it um, manufactured in Mexico. So the cartels, specific cartels, are actually getting the precursors from China to create the fentanyl. And then they're pressing it in large labs um, in Mexico and then those pills actually come up through the, their normal criminal networks, the same ones that they're distributing cocaine and heroin in. They're also use, utilizing that for um, the pills. And the thing is, is it's, it's you know, for, for the cartel, it's mass production, right, and high profit. And then the addiction and dependency is really high. So it's very easy to transport it up Um Pills are very easy, much easier to hide than a kilo or a brick of cocaine. And so that's kind of what we're seeing right now is um, I, I can remember on one of my cases we were dealing and they were dealing large quantities of heroin and cocaine. And um, the cartel members, the drug dealers would just throw in the, a bag of thousands of pills on top of it, not even charge them and just say, here and just give it to them. And, it, you know, that's scary because, you know, you get a bag of pill with 3,000, 4,000 pills in a bag, and that's 4,000 people that could die. Absolutely. Just terrifying stuff. And yes. again, something that everyone needs to be aware of, as you pointed out, starting at middle school, at least, you've got to start educating your kids. Um, if you're around students, your students, um, so that they don't go out and make what could be a fatal mistake. Yes. Yes. Christy, I'm so thankful for your time and your expertise and your willingness to share your knowledge and hopefully prevent some deaths and help educate people. So thank you for taking the time to talk to us this afternoon. You're welcome. I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks, Benson. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. We hope you found the content to be useful. And if you did, if you're on YouTube, be sure to like and subscribe. Otherwise, you can find us wherever podcasts are found.